All right, Romans chapter 11. Making our way through this 11th chapter. As we look at the book of Romans, to whom has Paul been writing throughout the book? Back in chapter 1, clear back in his introduction, in the very first verses, verse 1 he said, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And then in verse 7 of chapter 1 he said, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The beloved of God, the ones who have been called by God to be saints, believers in Jesus Christ. This is his audience. He's writing to believers, to those that are in this church in Rome. Now, among the members there, among these believers in this church, there would have been two groups represented. Jews, most likely those that had first brought the gospel back with them from Pentecost, and Gentiles, being in a city that was predominantly Gentile in composition. The believers in Rome would have been a mixed group as in most of the churches throughout the Mediterranean region. We don't know the exact composition, but there would have been both Jews and Gentiles represented within this church. At different points in his writing, at different points that we've seen throughout the letter, Paul's addressed the individual groups, the two different groups. In his greeting in chapter 1, he referred directly to the church members being Gentile. Chapter 2, we talked about, he was predominantly writing to those who were Jews, And now we get back here in chapter 11, and we're going to see Paul directly address the Gentiles once again. So throughout the letter, Paul has clearly referred at different times to each group individually, but he's also tied them all together as believers. Also back in chapter 1, he makes mention of the fact that he is to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, but then he mentions that the gospel was meant for the Jews first, but also to the Greeks. In chapter 3, we saw that there is no distinction between Jew and Greek in the sense that both are under the condemnation of sin. No man escapes his sinful condition because of who he is or what he does. But just as there is no distinction between Jew and Greek when it comes to sin, there is also no distinction when it comes to the offering of salvation. I forgot my thing. Sorry about that. There's also no distinction when it comes to the offering of sin. In verse 21 of chapter 3, he said, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Salvation is meant for those who believe, regardless of who they are. And the plan of God includes both Jews and Gentiles. When it comes to the offering of salvation, the availability of salvation, there is no distinction. God's elect have been taken from among both groups, Jew and Gentile. Verse 23 of chapter 9, Paul had said, And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. God endures the vessels of wrath. He talked about in the verse just preceding this. He endures the vessels of wrath, those who are his enemies and and hate him. 
He endures them so that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. The ones that he has called from among both Jew and Gentile. Throughout the book of Romans, it has been clear the gospel of Jesus Christ is meant not for Jews only and not for Gentiles only. But it is meant for and applicable to both. In these last few chapters of Romans that we've been looking at, 9, 10, and 11, Paul has been explaining the relationship between Jews and Gentiles in the plan of God. On a national level, the Jews are the people of God. God specifically chose Israel as a nation. They have received every spiritual blessing and privilege, but they had rejected those blessings rejected the very Messiah in favor of a works-based system of righteousness based on the law. They were holding on to the law. The result of that was their stumbling, the stumbling of Israel, their misstep with the rejection of the Messiah. The Messiah came, but they rejected him in favor of their own works-based system of the law. If you remember a few weeks back, we talked about the shadow and the person, right? A shadow is something that indicates that there's a real person there. They should have been focused on the person, but instead, they were infatuated and and stuck on the shadow, which didn't have substance. That's what the law was. So now there are consequences for their misstep on both a national and a personal level. Personally, anybody who rejected the Messiah, rejected the gospel of salvation, is lost. Dying in their sins, they are lost for all eternity. That consequence doesn't change depending on who you are. But nationally, for the nation of Israel, there were temporary consequences that resulted from their rejection on that national level. One of those consequences was the offer of salvation to the Gentiles. He said again, back in chapter 9, verse 30, What shall we say then? That Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, attained righteousness even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Gentiles, who hadn't been given any special blessings or privileges, had received the righteousness that they weren't even looking for. They weren't even pursuing. How? Because they just happened to stumble across it? No. Because God had sovereignly decided to choose from among them as well and offer his gift of salvation to the Gentiles. Now, does that mean that all the Gentiles are righteous now? No, not at all. Just as we aren't talking about all of Israel being lost. We saw that in our last study. There was still a remnant. There's still some within Israel that are being saved. When we talk about Israel being saved as a nation, it's in reference to those individuals who are from Israel who have placed their faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the same with the Gentiles. It is those who have placed their faith from among the Gentile nations that have have been saved, placed their faith in the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the means of salvation for anyone, Jew or Greek. But nationally, again, as a nation, as a form of judgment, God has temporarily turned away from dealing directly with the nation of Israel and is now devoting his attention instead on the Gentiles 
through the body of Christ. And this is the church. This is where we've come in. The church is comprised mostly of Gentiles. That's not to say that there aren't any Jews in the church, because there are. We, we looked last time, Paul himself was saved. Paul himself was a part of the church. The apostles, Gentile, or Jews, sorry, were part of the church. But predominantly, those who were making up the church in the later years of the apostles' ministry, and even to a greater degree today, have not come from a Jewish background, but from a Gentile background. And as we continue to go through Romans chapter 11, we'll understand more and more of why this is the case. So what we're in today, as the church today, we're in the church age. You may remember from our study in Daniel last year, for those of us that were here for Daniel, we talked about that gap in time between the cross and the tribulation, right? When we were studying through Daniel chapter 9, we talked about the 70 weeks of Daniel and the cross being the end of that 69th week in Daniel's prophecy, when the Messiah would be cut off, that was an indication of the cross, when Israel rejected their Messiah. And the tribulation being the start of the 70th week in that same prophecy. The entire age between the cross and the tribulation is the church age, that gap in time in which Daniel didn't deal with. We didn't study that in Daniel, mostly because Daniel didn't know about it. He didn't understand that gap. It's this time that we are in today, which is what Paul is dealing with here. This age is a period in which God has turned away from them for a time. And during this time, they are under the discipline of God. Discipline with a view to restore them for restoration. It's the same thing when you talk about discipline. It's the same thing that we talk about what all discipline is for, right? When you discipline your child, it is not you casting them aside permanently, right? You discipline your child in order to get them to stop doing what they're doing and restore them to what's right. We talk about discipline within the church. It's the same thing. A sinning believer within the church is disciplined so that they are restored to right fellowship. Discipline is a means to correct have them turn from their sin and restore them to right fellowship. As we go through our passage today, we'll see that this is a part of the process that God is currently putting Israel under. But more than that, it has further reaching benefits to the Gentiles. His discipline of them has benefited us. The sin of Israel means blessings for the nations in the salvation that has been offered to the world, to the Gentiles. But in offering salvation to the Gentiles, that does not mean that he is finished with Israel, but that he uses that offering as a tool of their restoration. Now, for our study today, we start in verse 11. We went through verses 1 through 10 last time. We start in verse 11 today where Paul starts off, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? This is the same pattern that we had back in verse 1. Relates back to what he had previously stated. The question is, who is the they that he's referring to here? They did not stumble so as to fall. Well, he's obviously talking about the Jews. That's the context of this. He's been talking about Israel. But immediately before this, in verses 7 through 10, he was talking about the hardened Jews, right? He was talking about those that had obtained righteousness and those that were hardened by God. 
the Jews that had been blinded by God had been given a spirit of stupor so that they couldn't understand. And those would be the unbelieving, the non-elect Jews. And this was a result of their discipline as a nation. So the question is, is that who is in view here? Is he talking about these lost Jews? Well, the stumble and the fall, those words that are used here, have an idea of permanent rejection, much like we saw when we were talking about verse 1. Stumble is the transgression of rejecting Christ. Fall would be spiritual ruin, irretrievably fallen. A condition in which the ones in view are permanently cast off. In the case of the ones who have been hardened, contrasted with those who were called by God to salvation, that would be true of them. But in asking this, Paul, what is Paul's response? May it never be. There's our, there's our familiar answer, his rhetorical question that he's asking. Absolutely not, is what he's saying here. So once again, the idea of them stumbling so as to fall is ridiculous. These, these people, this group that he's talking about here, have not stumbled so as to completely fall or be cast away. So the they that he's referring to here is again talking about Israel as a whole, as a nation. Look back up at verse 7 where Paul started that last a little bit that I was talking about. He said, what then? What Israel is seeking it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. So Paul in that verse started off speaking about the nation of Israel, Israel as a whole. What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. So that's again the group as a whole referring to the nation, but then from there he split off into those who were chosen and then the rest, dealing with them individually within the nation. Israel as a nation hasn't obtained righteousness, hasn't obtained salvation. As a nation, they were lost in their lack of knowledge, and they rejected and they crucified their Messiah. But that nation was comprised of individuals, the few chosen individuals that did obtain it, and then the rest that were hardened. We won't get into a discussion on Israel as a nation obtaining righteousness until we get down to verse 26, where he says, so all Israel will be saved. But it's at that point that Israel, the nation, will be comprised of saved individuals. And I'm going over all of this. Maybe you're wondering, why is he talking about this? Because I want to make sure that we are that we understand how this national and individual dealing relate to one another. We need to understand how they both differ and how they're similar, the similarities and the differences here. So getting back to our context here, national Israel, they, Israel as a whole, not individual believers or unbelievers, but the sin of Israel as a nation has not caused them to be permanently spiritually ruined has not caused God to say, well, this nation was a bad choice. I'm going to do away with them, not have anything else to do with them, and I'm going to move on to some other nation. No, they have not been completely cut off in that way. God is and always will be faithful to his promises to them. It's interesting how the question in this verse relates back to verse 1. Um, Verse 1 of chapter 11 asked and answered the question, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? 
And you see what's involved there with that question he asked there. God's action, has God rejected his people? This is the question of what God has or has not done. Now we come to verse 11, and how has the question changed? Israel did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Now the question is around what Israel did or did not do. And remember, again, back uh, into chapter 9 and into chapter 10, Paul was talking about Israel's responsibility. So what do we see here with these two questions? Paul makes a complete statement by asking these two questions. God has not cut them off completely by casting them away. May it never be. And neither have they sinned so badly that they cut themselves off. May that never be. So what can we conclude? Israel will someday be restored. It's a pretty clear indication here. So what has happened? The rest of verse 11. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. And here we see the summary of the twofold effect of God's turning aside from the nation of Israel. The first one being that salvation has come to the Gentiles. When Christ came to earth, and we've talked about this before, when Christ came to earth, he came to his own people as a Jew. The gospel is the power of salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Israel was offered salvation first, but because of their rejection of it, it was offered elsewhere. Now, we're going to look at a few passages, a couple passages about this. Turn with me over to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21 is in Jesus' last week before the crucifixion. And he's speaking to them in parables here. We look down at verse 33 of Matthew 21. He says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterwards, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these vine growers? They said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Jesus said to them, did you ever read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now what happens here? The vine growers rejected the servants, right? And even the owner's son, landowner has the, the, the land, he rents it out to these vine growers, and they reject all that the owner sends to them, right? Those are the prophets. And then he sends his own son. They reject his own son. Israel was entrusted with the promises of God, and because of their sin, God has gone out to find 
other vine growers. These would be the Gentiles. Look at verse 43. Jesus says, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Now this is the benefit of the Gentiles that he's talking about here. In chapter 22, he goes on to repeat this with the parable of the wedding feast, right? Where those invited refuse to come, and so they are rejected, and the feast is given to those whom they can find off the street. Once again, taken from the Jews, given to the Gentiles. Now, let me just point this out while we're here. We need to be careful with this verse 43, as well as these parables, because they're often misunderstood. Jesus here is referring to the religious leaders at the time. He's talking within earshot of the very Jews who were seeking to kill him, just like the owner's son in the parable. For them, individually once again, they will not see the kingdom of God. They will die in their sins and they will never experience salvation. Their opportunity to believe will be over and the offer of the kingdom will be given to the Gentiles. But this verse does not mean that Israel as a nation has no future. That the kingdom is permanently taken away from Israel forever. That's not what Jesus is saying here. So don't get confused. We're seeing in Romans chapter 11 that that's not the case. That it's not a permanent thing. It's permanent for those that were around at that time. That those, that, those that were rejecting and crucifying the Lord. It was permanent for those individuals, but not for the nation as a whole. So be careful with this verse. This is a verse that those who hold to spiritual Israel and a replacement of Israel with the church often use to justify their view. But that's not the whole context here. But it is an indicator of what we're seeing in our discussion in Romans chapter 11 in the sense that as a judgment for Israel's unbelief, the offer of the gospel that leads to the kingdom is given to others, to Gentiles. Now turn with me over to the book of Acts. So we've seen Jesus talking about this coming. But turn with me to the book of Acts in Acts chapter 13. And we see this concept become a reality with the preaching of the apostles in the early church. And if you remember in, in church last Sunday, Josh mentioned that these chapters, 11, 12, 13 in this area, this is kind of a turning point in the book of Acts where we go from Jews to Gentiles being the focus of the ministry. But Paul specifically has a pattern of first going to the Jews in each city in which he preaches, but he isn't warmly received by them. In the latter part of Acts 13, Paul arrives at Pisidian Antioch. And the first Sabbath, he goes and he preaches in the synagogue. Well, who's in the synagogue? It's the Jews, right? He goes and preaches to the Jews first. Verse 43 says that many of the Jews seem to respond well to that message preached. But then we get to verse 44, and we see what happens the next week, the following week. Verse 44 says, The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. Now keep in mind, Pisidian Antioch was a Gentile city. Now here, an entire week later, an entire week in which word of Paul's message had spread far and wide throughout the city, not just Jews were assembled to hear, but now Gentiles are coming as well. So what's the response of the Jews to this? Verse 45, But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, 
and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. The previous week, some Jews responded fairly well. But now when the Jews all see the Gentiles, and there were probably more Jews, other Jews that had come in too, that, that maybe weren't responding favorably the week before. But when they, all these Jews see the Gentiles here, what is their reaction? They're jealous. They're enraged. They reject the message from Paul. So now Paul and Barnabas respond in verse 46. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For, the Lord, for, for so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. This is what Jesus was talking about and what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 11. They turn to the Gentiles. They take the message of the gospel to them instead. What's the Gentiles' response? Verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. They accepted the message openly and who, and who was saved? as many as had been appointed to eternal life. Once again, we see the sovereign plan of God at work here. So the rejection of the Jews brings about salvation to the Gentiles. But is that all there is to it? Is it just an offer to the Gentiles? And, and now it's gospel goes to the Gentiles and that's it. Is that all that God intends to do now? He's just going to save Gentiles? No, even the salvation of the Gentiles has a purpose for the nation of Israel. What does Paul say at the end of verse 11, back in Romans 11? Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Those are the Jews again, to make Israel jealous. What did we just see in Acts 18? That even the gathering of the Gentiles in Antioch to hear the message from Paul and Barnabas was enough to make them jealous. Now the saving power of the gospel of God has been given to the Gentiles outright. The church being comprised mostly of Gentiles. This isn't a new concept. We've already seen this, right? He alluded to it back in, in chapter 10, verse 19, where Paul said, But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? Were they unaware of all that was going on? Were they unaware that the Gentiles were going to be saved? They shouldn't have been. First, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. Moses had stated this would happen all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 32. By an ignorant nation. That's us. We're Gentiles. I'm assuming we're all Gentiles. Maybe if, if not, somebody can correct me later. But that's us, the Gentiles, those without spiritual sense. The Jews were told that God would turn his attention away from them and turn it elsewhere to make them jealous. This is another one of those concepts that people have a hard time with. When you hear salvation was given to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Why did God offer salvation to me? To make them jealous. It kind of sounds like the guy who goes on a date with a girl and then he tells her later, oh, I only went on a date with you because at that restaurant my ex worked there. 
and I wanted to make her jealous. That's not really the kind of thing that you want to hear, is it? That's not the thing that impresses the ladies. But that's why some people have a hard time. What's that? Oh, that doesn't work. But that's why some people have a hard time with this concept, because that's the type of thing that you start to think about. It appears that we were a second choice, not always comfortable situation. It appears that we were only thought of because of Israel's mistake. Is that what's going on? Well, partially yes, but partially no. There's a couple of things that we need to keep in mind for our, for our situation. As those that are saved here in the church today that are Gentiles, we need to keep a couple of things in mind. First on one being, we were chosen beforehand for salvation just like the Jews were. Anyone that was saved was chosen before the foundation of the world for their salvation. As individual believers within the church, our salvation has always been a part of God's sovereign plan. Even the Abrahamic covenant makes reference to the blessings being bestowed to all the nations. God chose everyone that would be saved, Jew and Gentile, before the foundation of the world. So our salvation just happens to be during this period of time, a unique period that God is using to discipline his chosen nation. And another thing that we need to keep in mind, we will not be rejected at the time that Israel is restored. Now, the example that I used of the guy trying to make his ex jealous, right? What happens when he gets together with his ex? Well, he's not going to be dating that girl anymore, right? He's going to be rejecting her for the one that he wanted to get restored to. That's not what happens with us. There will not come a day when God will say, oh, Israel's responding to me again. Now I'm going to condemn all those Gentiles that I saved just to make Israel jealous. That doesn't happen. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We saw that back in the early parts of Romans chapter 8, verse 1. That holds true for anyone who has believed. As believers, we will always continue to belong to him in a special saving relationship. And we'll see that again as we go through here in chapter 11. But this is our role in God's plan of salvation. This is how he has chosen to lay out his plan to put us into a period of time and save us in order to make Israel jealous because of our salvation. Because salvation was offered to them first. And they were the ones that received the blessings and rejected them. Now, should this make me jealous of Israel? That I wasn't a first choice? Should that be my attitude? Well, I should look at them with jealousy. Not at all. I praise God that he saved me at all for any purpose, in any period of time. And if my accepting of the gospel can be used by God to further accomplish his purposes of saving those within his chosen nation, then praise God all the more. We come to verse 12. I know we've all gone through one verse. We're not going to get through a lot of verses today. We come to verse 12, and we see this concept broadened with respect to what this means for both Jew and Gentile. He says in verse 12, Now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? 
And what we see here is he uses some what we call parallelism. The transgression and failure are really the same thing. World and Gentiles are really the same thing. In rejecting their, her Messiah, Israel is messed up, right? They've stumbled. They've, they've, uh, they've messed up. That is, the situation that Israel is now in was brought about because of her sin, her transgression. This has brought on this heartbreaking situation that started Paul on this path, right? When he started clear back in in chapter 9, talking about the grief and sorrow that he has for the nation. This is Israel's failure or their defeat, their descent into the discipline of God once again. But once again, we have the benefit to the Gentiles that results from this. It produces riches for the world and riches for the Gentiles. To the Jews, this would have been one and the same. What's in view here is the world of the Gentiles, basically. We shouldn't think that there is a different meaning for the entire world, including the Jews, and then just for the Gentiles. The contrast obviously doesn't allow for the Jews to be included in the world here, right? He's contrasting the two. But put simply, he's again saying that we're looking at spiritual riches or benefits because of Israel's sin. The rest of the world. Israel messed up. They were defeated. They transgressed. So now the rest of the world is, gets the riches from that, gets the benefit from that. But at the end of the verse, Paul goes on to show that there is more to this present situation. It's not just their defeat that he's talking about here. If the sin of Israel has a result of riches to the Gentiles, and their sin means riches to the world... How much more will their fulfillment be? If the Gentile world received benefit from the failure and defeat of Israel, just think what benefit will be received when Israel's restored, when God brings her back into that right relationship. When will that be? What time are we talking about with that? When the Lord returns to establish his millennial kingdom on the earth, it's going to be the time of that restoration. At that time, the blessings that a few Gentiles receive by coming to belong to him will pale in comparison to the work that he will be doing on earth. Jesus Christ will be ruling and reigning on earth during that time. Zechariah 14.9 says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. During the time of the millennium, Jesus himself will sit on the throne of David and rule over the whole earth. Israel will have been restored, fulfilled. Okay, so what about the Gentiles? If Israel's restored then, what about us? What about Gentiles? Verse 16 of Zechariah 14 says, Then it will come around, then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Any who are left of all the nations. Who would this refer to? Who would be left? These would be the Gentiles who were saved during the time of the tribulation, those who will enter the kingdom when Christ returns. They will be able to worship the king. At this time, the entire world will be different. The entire world will be changed. It will truly be a God-fearing world that we will live in 
at that time. If you think about it, in that seven-year period, there's a lot that changes in the world. At the beginning of the tribulation, every believer on earth is raptured, is taken up to glory. At that point in time, there is not a single believer on earth initially. For seven years, God will focus on Israel. People will be getting saved. Then at the end of the tribulation, there's the judgment of the nations. Everyone who's not a believer will be cast aside, and only those who are believers will go into the kingdom. So when the kingdom starts, there is only believers on earth. That's all that's left. And so that's what we're seeing here. Jew and Gentile of those that are saved going into the kingdom, the millennial kingdom. This is the fulfillment of Israel. When they have once again taken their place as God's people and they, have com- and they are comprised of those from the physical nation who have placed their faith in the gospel of their Messiah. How can we say that God has rejected them? that they have stumbled to the point of having completely fallen away when we know for a fact that they will one day be fulfilled and restored. And their time of fulfillment will usher in the complete overhaul of this world where Jesus Christ will reign as king. Look at verse 13. But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. So Paul here directly relates his comments again to the Gentiles among the Roman faithful. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, and he even made mention of this back in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 of chapter 1. He said, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Paul's ministry was focused and directed towards the Gentiles. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. But as we've already talked about, he recognizes that the church there was a mixed congregation. He knew that it wasn't just Gentiles. A congregation that had questions regarding God's plan for Jews and Gentiles together. How does that all work out? So now Paul is directing his comments toward the Gentile believers, letting letting them know that he is writing this so that they would understand the plan of God and the role of, of Paul's own ministry to them. So how does that fit in? Well, he recognizes and relates the importance of being the apostle to the Gentiles. After all, it was a calling by God himself to send him to the Gentiles. Paul tells Agrippa, King Agrippa, uh, of the message that God gave him in Acts chapter 26. In Acts 26, 16, it says, But get up, this is what God had told Paul, but get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. God sent Paul to the Gentiles. But being a Jew, Paul also had a great deal of affection and concern for his own people always wanting them to repent and come to salvation, which is what we saw at the beginning 
of chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. He still had that concern for them. So in this respect, Paul saw his ministry to the Gentiles as magnified, as glorified, because not only does it fulfill his calling, going to the Gentiles and proclaiming the gospel to them, bringing it to the rest of the world, but it also carries with it the opportunity for Paul to affect his own people. And he explains this further when we get to verse 14. So at the end of 13, he says, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. Paul sees his ministry as the Gentiles as a way to move his people to jealousy and to bring them to repentance. Now, is it wrong for Paul to think this way? Think, oh, you're only witnessing to these people so that you can affect these people? Is that wrong of Paul? No, because this was part of God's plan, just as we saw before. The offering of salvation to the Gentiles was to make Israel jealous in order to bring them to salvation. Paul has the unique opportunity to be directly involved in that work. Notice here how Paul recognizes his role, his importance here. He doesn't think that he will bring about the fullness of Israel himself, but that it has an opportunity to save some, he says. Not all, but some. I want to see some saved, even if I can save some of them. It's important to note that God is the one who saves. It's not our work. It's his work. As long as we're faithful, that's what's important. We pray for the lost. We share the gospel with the lost. We maintain our witness and our testimony to make sure that our character reflects the very character of Christ in all that we do. And by some grace, by, and by, by some of God's grace, we pray that we will be blessed to see him save some of those that we witness to. We're not going to save all. Unfortunately not. But if God saves some, then praise God for his work. We pray that we might have a part in that. But we understand it's not for our sake. It's not even for their sake. It's ultimately for his sake and his glory. So, so far we've seen the transgression of Israel bringing about these things. But verse 15 brings up the sovereign work of God once again. And this is, this is as far as we'll get today, verse 15. He says, For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? We have here the rejection and the acceptance of Israel. This is not what Israel has rejected or what they will accept. These are actions that occur on or to them. This is their rejection by God and accepting them back to himself. And he said, but wait, the rejection by God. Didn't we read in verse 1 that God hasn't rejected them? Why are we seeing, why are we saying now that God has rejected them? Why are we saying that this is God's rejection of them? Well, there's a different word used here. This is a word that's translated as loss in the book of Acts. It's only used two times in scripture. But it doesn't have the same idea of permanence as the word back in verse 1 had. It's not a permanent loss. Also, by the very context, we see that, there, that this would be a temporary condition. We see their rejection, but it is immediately followed by their acceptance. Rejected, but then accepted. 
And we, we remember back to, hopefully remember back to a few weeks ago when we were at the end of chapter 9 and we saw some of the Old Testament quotes that Paul was using there. We went back to Hosea. And in Hosea's prophecy, if you remember Hosea, Hosea was the prophet who took a wife of harlotry. And he has three kids from that union. And they are all named for different aspects of God's judgment upon Israel, right? Real happy family, right? But one of his kids is named Lo-Ami, his third child. And back in Hosea chapter 1, when the command comes to name that child, in verse 9 of Hosea 1, it says, And the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. That's what Lo-Ami means, not my people. Now, just from that verse alone, that sounds pretty permanent. You're not my people, I am not your God. Sounds permanent, but then in the very next verse, we read this, verse 10. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured and numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are sons of the living God. What did we have there? What did we talk about back then? Restoration. They will be judged and cast aside for a time, but then ultimately they will be restored, being back to the sons of the living God. That's what we're talking about here. Although Isaiah's prophecy, like most of the New Testament prophets, like we talked about even with Daniel, didn't have details on what would happen in between those two things. But now it's the details of this church age gap that we're talking about that Paul is revealing for us. So what does God's rejection of them bring? The reconciliation of the world, he says. Some would try to use these verses to say that this shows that the whole world will be saved. But we know that that's not the case. That's not what he's saying here. What we see here is similar to what we saw before. Israel's present condition has brought salvation to the Gentiles and everyone else. Reconciliation of the world has been made possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's plan of salvation was always intended to come through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But in human terms, the death of Christ was brought about because of his own people rejecting their Messiah. They offered him up to be crucified. Because of their rejection of him, one more instance in a long line of many, we now have God rejecting them for a time and offering the salvation that resulted from that to the rest of the world. It's through Christ's work on the cross that sinners can be reconciled to God. We talked about this back in chapter 5. Look at chapter 5 for a minute. Back in verse 10. He said, Therefore, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. In reconciliation... Both man's sin is atoned for and God's wrath is appeased to make it possible for the sinner and the holy God to exist together. Both of those things need to happen before there can be reconciliation between God and man. 
the rejection of Israel made this reconciliation a possibility for the world, bringing about a sacrifice for sins that is applicable to all who believe. If this is the case, if that's what their rejection brought about, then what will their acceptance bring? Life from the dead. When Israel is restored by God and he brings them back to himself, as we've already seen, a process that will take place when the thousand-year millennial kingdom is established. This isn't just talking about bodily resurrection from the dead, although that will take place at this time as well, but it's referring really to the spiritual condition of the nation. Like we talked about, at the end of the tribulation, all those that go into the kingdom, all those from Israel that go into the kingdom will be saved because only believers will go into the kingdom. That's it. It's at that point that Israel as a nation will be alive from the dead. And this is a concept that takes us back to Ezekiel 37. So turn back with me to Ezekiel 37. I told you that verse 15 was our last verse. I didn't say that was the last verse we were going to read, but the last verse that we were going to get to in Romans. Ezekiel 37. This is the valley that's filled with the dry bones. Ezekiel is brought to this valley filled with dry bones. Look at verse 1 of Ezekiel 37. It says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them round about, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O oh, Lord God, you know. Again he said to me, Prophesy over these bones, and say to them, O oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you, that you may come alive, and you will know that I am the Lord. So here God tells Ezekiel that he will cause these bones to come back to life, to breathe life into them. What is this? This is life from the dead, right? Dry bones. I think we would all agree. That's dead. You can't get much more dead than dry bones. But God can take even these dry bones and breathe life into them. And in verses 7 through 10, we see him do exactly that as Ezekiel prophesies. But skip down with me to verse 11. Where it says, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. I will put my spirit within you, and you will come to life, and I will place you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. So here's the explanation of these bones. These are the nation of Israel. God will restore them. They will not be cut off any longer. He will bring them into the land that he had promised to their forefathers. And most importantly, they will be a nation spiritually alive with the Spirit poured out into, upon them, 
put them put within them as they will be a nation composed of individuals that have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Skip down to verse 21. Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king will be king for all of them. And they will no longer be two nations and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. And they will be my people and I will be their God. They will be restored back to God, made alive in him. What a beautiful and vivid picture of what God is going to do with his chosen nation. Bringing them back to life. This is the time that awaits Israel. The future that has been promised to them. Are they permanently cut off? Have they been completely removed from God's plans? Never. Did the sun stop rising? Did the stars and the moons vanish? No. Then God has not rejected his chosen nation. What should our attitude be towards the Jews? Should we look upon them as the murderers of Jesus? Should we hold them in contempt for rejecting the Messiah of God? You know what? As sinners, we're all the murderers of Jesus. They're not special. He died for my sins. He died for your sins. Paul was pretty clear in Romans chapter 5 that Jesus didn't die because of the sins of just the Jews, he, but because of the sins of the world, because death spread to all men because all sinned. At one time, the majority of the Jews thought of themselves as better than the Gentiles, better than everyone else because of who they were. Now, in many cases, that role seems to have reversed. Gentile believers have adopted that same stance against the Jews. A condition that I believe contributes to the teaching that God has done with Israel. A teaching that some of the early church fathers taught. Many of the reformers even taught that. And it has crept down through the years to be a prevalent teaching today. How can we read Romans 11 and believe that God doesn't have a plan for Israel? How can a believer in Jesus Christ today, someone who has experienced salvation because of God's work, with Israel have anything but compassion for this people whom God has claimed as his very own and will one day restore to himself. And we receive blessings from that. So we praise God for his work with Israel and praise God for the benefits that we now as Gentiles, as those in the church have obtained because of his work through them. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord. We just give you praise for another time that we've had in the book of Romans. We thank you, Lord, for your plans. We thank you for uh, the promises that you have made um, through time to, the, to Abraham, to David, to um, all the church fathers, Lord, to the, uh, the fathers of Israel. We just thank you for the plans that you have set in motion, and we know that you are faithful to complete. And we just pray, Lord, that you would help us to just understand your word and understand how we fit into those plans. We praise you and thank you, Lord, most of all for the gift of salvation that you've brought.
We pray, Lord, that as those that have put our faith and trust in you for salvation, that um, regardless of uh, other plans, regardless of other things uh, that we see here, Lord, or feelings that we might have, that we would make it a priority in our lives to be sharing the gospel with those that we come in contact with. We pray, Lord, that that would be our number one priority. We thank you, Lord, for um, the opportunity that we have to be here again this morning. We pray that you would... Uh, in the next hour, just give us understanding into the Word. Uh, pray, Lord, that um, Josh would be uh, clear and that we would be able to understand uh, just more from the book of Revelation. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.